This episode originally aired on March 5th, 2017. Enjoy! Hi everyone and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Today I'm joined by Deidre Black and Emily Long. Thank you so much for being here today, ladies. It's always good to have you. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Perfect. So today our episode is entitled Horror Story, How We Survived. And that is horror, H-O-R-R-O-R. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who are wondering. <laughs> That'd be a whole other podcast. <laughs> Right? Not going there. <laughs> Anyways, t- today we're going to be talking about some of the issues that you can encounter in the field and that we have either encountered ourselves or maybe we've heard about somebody else encountering, be they transportation issues, issues in the, the lab, issues with pers- uh, the personnel that you're working with environmental issues, it's really hot, it's snowing, it's, I don't know, there's a bear chasing you. Rattlesnakes. <laughs> yeah, are welcome. So to, to start that off, um, like I said, we're going to start with, with inside issues. And I think, Deidre, you had mentioned a, a fun tale about sharing lab space with a forensics team. Yes, Right in my grad studies, the anthropology graduate department was growing rapidly while I was there. And so for a brief time, archaeology and forensics shared lab space. And it just happened that this particular group of grad students in forensics, the vast majority majority of them were doing decomp studies. Of course. It's it's fun. It makes great pictures. It smells really bad. Right. I mean, everyone wants to smell that all the time. (laughs) <laughs> and so this was all going on and we had one room and it wasn't so much a room but there was just some dividers in this big warehouse space <laughs> and I was on the other side of this d- divider uh, counting my rocks because that was my thesis as you do um, and as you do and the forensics people were actually what we were were in what we call the bone room uh, because it had an extra sink with a uh, silt trap and all that jazz on it. And there was one archaeologist working there on a human remains collection, like old, dusty, not smelly. But it was also where the forensic students had put their giant Navy-sized deep freeze to store the f- feral pigs that the local ranchers were donating to the program. Oh, oh no. Okay. The first problem that we started having was people, even though we, they were told to wash their bones outside, so that because we had to pay every time uh, to clean, get the trap cleaned, yeah. and yeah, and the uh, the tissues would sort of clog it. Oof, and yeah. so we did have a problem with people washing their bones inside, despite <laughs> being told to. And but that wasn't too bad. And then halfway through the summer. Mind you, Texas Hill Country summer, 100 plus degrees. Warehouse space, it has cooled okay. Um, I am pleased to say that the lab has since moved into a much better place with climate control and all of this stuff for the artifact collections. But not at this time because it was growing. And we're in there, and every now and then we just get this waft of a really bad smell like what the hell is that and there was a handful of us because it was an accelerated program that we were there you know from 5 a.m till midnight working in the lab trying to get our thesis stuff done in in very short amounts of time and at first we thought well maybe it's the bathroom because they're on a sewer lift system it's not so good it's an old building we're like no it's not that you know a couple more days the wafting is getting a little more frequent we go over and I smell the sink and the sink, sink smells very, very bad. Oh, no. And so I I put the baking soda and the vinegar in there. I'm like, oh, that's fine. Oh, crap. It's clogged because there's hair in there or whatever. And then even though that was there, all of a sudden I got a really, really bad waft of the smell and I heard a noise. I was like, what is oh, that? God. I looked to my left and I saw that like, this giant freezer full of pigs was plugged in. But no one had turned temperature dial, and the the sound was the lid releasing pressure and then closing. I was like, what? So I did one of those, you know, 
quick looks that you do. Yeah. Just to <laughs> see it, to confirm. And like there was liquid, stuff was moving. I shut it and I tried not to throw up. Oh. And I worked at a daycare <laughs> with small children that were sometimes sick. And I've worked on farms. I've done surveys around chicken farms, but this smell, I don't know because it was concentrated or what, but it was, it was bad. Pal. Oh it was so bad. And then there's all this, like the department section supervisors getting called and yelling at each other. And one of the forensic <laughs> students comes in and goes, does it smell that bad? Oh. I was like, I am an archeologist. My bones are not squishy most of the time. And so like, they had to move this whole freezer full of slushing oh. out to the parking lot and get it picked up. That was fun. Awful. On a, it, it also smelled pigs, so bad. But it's, it's not quite a smell story. Um, the forensic field school that I did, because I did start out as a more of a forensic anthropologist than an archaeologist... The, it was a four-week field school, and the, the fourth week I was there, we did mass disaster recovery, oh, wow. which included getting the bomb squad from the, one of the police departments that was someone nearby us. And we also, we had a couple of, like, FBI people come talk to us. There was someone from the Canadian police who came. So we got a, a lot of really good instruction, but they uh, took us out into a field, and they obviously had permits and everything had gotten some pigs and put them in clothing and in the car and blew up a minivan and there were there were two there's two horror stories to this one of it is scent related one of it is not the first problem being that in order to blow this car up we were using it was debt debt cord maybe i don't know they were something where you could stand a very very long way away from the car and hit a button <laughs> before they did that they said you know, to the students, do you want to go look at how the pigs are placed and take that into consideration when we're doing the recovery efforts? And one of the girls who was assisting with that class stood about 15 feet away from this car that had live explosives in oh it and lit a cigarette. You've got like bomb squad people screaming at her and like the rest of us running for cover. And she's just kind of like, oh, but I'm far away from the car. And they're like, not far enough. It's like, Miles wouldn't be enough. I mean, it's just, that's bananas. Yeah, so so that was the first part of that, like, insanity story. And then, <laughs> you know, it took us two or three days to, it was two and a half days to recover everything. And, of course, you know, you flag the car parts and the pig parts and everything. But it was unseasonably warm. So we're in this field <laughs> doing recovery of, of uh, exploded pig. And car and, you know, there are tons of flies everywhere and it didn't smell particularly wonderful. And then we also had the fun conversation with the the individual from the detonation group who came in and said, basically, everything you're wearing, you should throw away because it's basically impossible to get this residue out of your clothing. The bomb residue? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he, every time he goes through the airport and they don't, you know, detonate things all that often, even if it's stuff that he's never worn to work, if he's ever washed it with anything he was wearing to work, he has problems. So there were a whole bunch of us who lost a lot of clothing. So that was an interesting one. Man, I don't have any stories like that. (laughs) It's okay. That's the only story I have like that. Everything else is... I accidentally deleted the base that had, you know, all of my information in it that I'd been working on for four days. Why well, you should I had to back things up. Oh, yeah. I my, had a um, co-worker do that with field data. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, one, um, one of the government agencies I, I worked for at one point, they gave me a box of field work no, like stuff on notebook paper, random maps. And they said they at one point had an employee where they did a, a quote unquote survey, but they didn't actually use 
trembles. They didn't really keep track of where they went on the maps. They didn't really do site records. And that was a complete mess. And they had no idea what happened. And I mean, that's that's a horror story for sure for the agency not knowing what happened on the landscape and did they just throw thousands of dollars down a hole. And so their way of working it out was giving me the box of paperwork and say, reconstruct as much as you possibly can. <laughs> and I'm going through, and this is one of my first jobs in archaeology, and I'm going through going, uh, they may have gone here, I'm not sure. And it's like, they found one flake somewhere in this five acres. And <laughs> trying to go from there. Story in terms of losing paperwork, but for a personal one in college, while I'm working on my thesis, because where I went, you had to write a thesis, and my computer decided to crash while I'm working on my thesis. I remember it was like the most horrifying experience ever. And I've been backing stuff up on a an external hard drive, but I'm watching literally as the computer is shutting itself down. And it's just like, you know, freaking out. And I was trying to like burn stuff on discs and recopy things as fast as I possibly could. And then it was just like, boop. And I was like, no! <laughs> And I, fortunately, I did not I was... lose anything. But it was the most horrifying experience because I didn't have another computer. It was my senior year. Um, I'm trying to, like, reconstruct as much as possible. And if it's freaked me out so much ever since then. I am insanely neurotic about backing up information i have like two external hard drives i have flash drives i have cds and i have the philosophy where it's like you need to back things up in three places because if you lose one then you have two if you lose another one you at least have one left it's like you should always assume you're gonna break or lose one of them no that's that's, that's a great idea <laughs> yeah um, i i had lost so much stuff when i was just on, on floppy disks that when I did my master's thesis, anytime I finished a page, I would save it to all these different places. And that was when jump drives were like brand new. You know, your your half a meg jump drive was 70 bucks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I would save it on my computer. I would save it on the jump drive and I would email it to myself. Every And every time I finished a page, I would stop, save, send it to three places. <laughs> Not taking any chances. Yeah. Oh, I was I so to. paranoid. And the whole, and the fact that I had uh, an accelerated program in particular, like I could not afford to lose, mm -hmm. you know, more than an hour. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. and sometimes it doesn't even matter much how good your data recovery skills are. Because I know um, I've worked with some, some older collections in labs and... There are a lot of really great things about working with older collections, but mm -hmm. older collections often means older collections policies um, or recovery yeah. processes. And if you're yeah. looking with something is like this state, thanks. Well, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not even provenience, but I've had collections where instead of Right today when we bag up items, every item gets its own bag and you put mm -hmm. the site uh, name on it and you get the square number, you know, the lot launch class, if you have them on there and you say what it is and what number it is in the artifact log and you just, all of this information, it goes in a logbook, it goes on a bag, it goes everywhere. Yeah. There's so much redundancy, which is wonderful. And I've literally had collections where you're, there's a bag full of objects <laughs> And then there's an artifact log that has numbers on it. And then there's some graph paper where somebody's traced oh. the outlines of the objects and numbered them. And then they're all bagged together. And sometimes you can figure out what's what, especially if it's the original paperwork. But sometimes it's scans of scans of scans and they don't have scales on them. And then you hope that there's something really, 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 really odd shaped listed on that page that you can find and figure out what the scale is. And it's just, oh, man. It's bad. And when you when you do it, it's yeah. great. And you're like, oh, I've accomplished something. This is wonderful. But when that lands in your lap. You want to hit your head against a yeah. wall. 
right? Oh, yeah. a, a woman I've worked with cord. has dealt with that with human remains. Oh, no. <laughs> so I actually have two human remains. Where did they come from? Oh. One was uh, someone that was working on their thesis. The thing she was doing for her thesis was pulling together this prehistoric North American human remains collection that had been in a small town museum and then after NAGPRA was given away, and so she had to figure out how many people were there, where they come from, you know, all the things you would normally do. And the people showed up in wedding dress boxes and burlap sacks and some, like, vintage grease cans. So, like, there was a—one of the grease cans had, like, all the long bones— there's oh, a burst so sack of random together. bits. Oh my gosh. No. This is why this was a thesis. <laughs> and she did eventually get it all figured out, but I was like, girl. I mean, I'm wow. impressed. That's amazing. The other is it's an ongoing project. A woman I've done a lot of work with, a university that she has done work with on and off after one of their longtime archaeology professors left and eventually died they were remodeling the room or something along those lines and they opened a closet and found a lot of bone you know some of them looked really old some of them not so much some had numbers some didn't so there was some paper they were just sort of all jumbled together and her like personal project she's been working on is figuring out what's going on with all these bones and she's found out through some very old records uh, from the early days of State Historical Society, that this guy would be notified when a cave of prehistoric remains would be found. And he supposedly maybe excavated a couple or not. We don't know. And some of them are maybe teaching bones. And so she's currently, this is her personal long term project trying to figure out where all these bones came from. Do any of them need to be repatriated? If so, to who, to where? Just this giant jumble of people in a closet that no one knew about. Yeah. And the guy that knew about it is dead. Of course. When, even if it's not human, I, I've had some um, osteology professors who, for teaching the phonemy portion of their class whenever they have fried chicken or whenever they have t-bone steak or whenever they have ham or turkey at a holiday and i don't think these people have dogs um <laughs> they'll, <laughs> they'll throw the bones out in their yard and periodically dig it up and give it to their students as a project <laughs> to figure out like which bones have been out there longer or which bones were in the dry soil versus the wet soil versus uh, hey, I threw some in a bonfire one summer. And it's a really great project. And if you're just talking about the bones that came out of your, um, you know, fried trick chicken, it's fairly certain legal. <laughs> like, I think you can, I think you can, you know, do whatever you want with those bones. Mm -hmm. But I can't imagine if that, like, just finding that somewhere and not labeling it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like what are all these ham bones doing here? Right. I'm I'm very glad that I wasn't the person that had to move the that lab because over the years at the old lab where I did my project, people would pick up roadkill, especially snakes. Especially what? Put them in paper bags and put them in the freezer. They would pick up roadkill. Oh gosh. Squished animals. Yeah. Uh, but mo mostly snakes and put them in a paper bag and label them and they were stacked up in the freezer right right next to my lunches. Right. <laughs> and some of the original people that were keeping them there have long since left the state. I think there were some plans for some of them that didn't happen and some that did. I'm just very glad I'm not the person that had to figure it out. Oh, look, it's a freezer of snakes. Awesome. So it seems like we're having a really excellent Come on, guys. Record keeping. It's important yes. kind of episode. Paperwork yeah. is a good thing. <laughs> Paper and, trail. And dump is a horrible smell. 
Oh, man, yeah. It's almost as if we're repulsed by it for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and decomp indoors is worse. It, oh, no, decomp is terrible. I have a fun decomp fact that's not about humans, and then we're going to be at the end of our um, section. But when sharks decompose, apparently they release some sort of whether it's like a neurotoxin or a regular toxin or what exactly it is, but it's basically a warning system to other sharks so that they huh? don't go into those areas. So areas that have a lot of either illegal or illegal, I will admit, I don't know a whole lot about shark trading, but that catch sharks to take their fins off and then they the rest of the shark back in the water and obviously it doesn't have fins, mm-hmm. so it doesn't last very long, uh, which is all very sad, but when those animals pile up, there will be no sharks in that part of the oh. the ocean. It's a and then they're, not, then they're not eating the predators that eat the smaller fish, and so you get a big explosion in the, in the mid-level predators. Yeah. And all the smaller fish that people, uh, the small-time fish for their family or their village, uh, all get taken away. Right. It could also be contributing uh, to shark attacks in coastal regions because yeah. sharks are trying to get away from um, the toxins that indicate death. So anyways, on that <laughs> completely non-archaeologically related <laughs> Next uh, time fun on Discovery of the day, right? Thank you, Shark Week. <laughs> uh, we are going to step away, and when we come back, we will be talking about personnel issues. Encounter. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Before the break, we were discussing some of the inside issues that can arise during archaeology. Uh, for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to be discussing some of the personnel issues that can sometimes occur in archaeology. I think that there are a multitude of, of opportunities for that to happen, <laughs> considering how closely we work with one another and mm-hmm. how long we spend together without civilization sometimes. Oh, definitely. And I think we've said it on some of the other episodes that one person can really make or break a project. Um, And that's why you always hope for the best group possible and relatively easygoing personalities, because one person can just bring an entire project down so quickly. And you just hope that that one person isn't one of the supervisors. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and you'll definitely get conflicts because I mean if you have multiple let's say you have a large scale excavation you'll have multiple supervisors multiple assistants and there will be clashing heads and I know I've experienced that myself and it can be incredibly frustrating where you think there's one way something should be done and you think the other the way other people are doing it is completely you know impractical and nonsensical you just kind of have to go with it because you're not in charge (laughs) clearly emily you should just always be in charge well obviously (laughs) well and there's sometimes people will uh disagree and especially if it's a gentleman of a certain caliber and the supervisors that they disagree with are women you get some very they're more likely to voice this opinion yeah. Yes. And not and and not as a question. So sometimes mm-hmm. if I think it something that my supervisor would be doing, you know, it could be done an easier way. I was like, "Hey, why are we doing it this way?" You know, most of the times I've done it this way. You know, open-ended. I want to learn, you know, if we never stop learning. Mm-hmm. But then I've had the guy go well, if I was the supervisor, I wouldn't be calling it for rain. This is stupid. <laughs> In front of the client, might I ask? Mm. Mm. Uh, That's unprofessional. I was like, well, but I have more experience in this region. 
and I know that it's going to rain really hard, stop for half an hour, and then rain so hard the trucks won't get out. So we're just going to go. Right. Common sense for the win. Well, and especially stuff where safety is involved, it's always good to speak up. Like, you may be in a terrible situation and you feel like you can't do anything about it. It's always better to speak up. I mean, I've been in situations where we're working outside and I'll have one person who's really good about making sure we all run to the truck if there's lightning. Well, then there'll be another situation where the person in charge is not that way and they'll have us keep working even though there is lightning strikes, you know. That you can see. Yeah. And oh, no. And, and that if, type of thing. And I mean, in terms if of If you advising, are worried about your safety, get to a car. Exactly. And yeah. so, I mean, in terms of our, our horror stories and how we survived them, I mean, personally for me, the surviving part is just take care of yourself and make sure you're taking care of everybody else. I mean, if it means having to step on the toes of your supervisor or something, sometimes you just have to say, no, this is ridiculous. I'm going to the car and I'm taking these people with me. Right. But also I've had to tell I've had to tell my supervisors, I know that that is how you want this to go and you can do it that way. But I will sign out as supervisor because I don't want to risk my RPA standing and my antiquities permit standing by doing that. Good for you. I know, still, and I still have a job. I was surprised. <laughs> I've been pretty lucky that I honestly I haven't dealt with many major personnel issues or huge personality conflicts. The big ones, unfortunately, though, were pretty big. I mean, I can like count on right. my one hand, just like you know, just a couple. But man, were they rough! And right, the point in the field where I was just like, "You make me want to quit." type of thing and so for me that's the, the worst somebody can make you feel is that you want to quit your job and this ties into our ongoing conversations about sexual harassment in the field and just as a personal experience I unfortunately had one encounter where I had one person and man it's just one person consistently telling me how I was doing thing was and I quote retarded stupid if, if this is how the other people taught you how to do this, they're being stupid and ridiculous. You're wrong. And they would call me little girl and just made me feel awkward and bad. And just, it was, it was awful. And I mean, it went for days. And I, at one point I did have to call our, our personnel person and say like this, I cannot do this anymore. And this is, I just, I cannot do it. And so the way for me for surviving was just getting out of the situation and just saying, I'm done. I'm putting my foot down. If I have to work with this individual again, I quit. And sometimes you just have to do that. And it's, it sucks. And that it, an ad experience is awful, but you just, you have to take care of you. Exactly. Right. If that makes sense. Um, and I, I've been the I've been the mid level supervisor mm-hmm. that had to deal with the person no one wants to be on a crew with, Ooh. and I'll relate things to you know my to the person who actually has power to hire and fire. No one wants to work with this guy. He makes everyone uncomfortable. He's really sexist. Da 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 da, da. And, and it, it took three field outings before I finally accumulated enough safety concerns regarding this person and that there was people that refused to come work those projects if he was there before he finally got uh, on the no-call list. Mm -hmm. And being the mid-level supervisor in those sucks because you get all of the blame and none of the power. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're the person that the crew sees as doing stuff you're the person that uh, the bo- the big boss, you know, communicates through. And it's like, I have no power. It sucks that it took that much mm-hmm. to. Well, and I think maybe if this person wasn't of their age and gender, that it wouldn't have taken that much. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't a young person. It was a middle-aged man. And I think if someone was causing that much problems and they weren't 
someone that our society ascribes so much automatic position to, it wouldn't have been as bad. Right. Well, and it's frustrating when, I mean, you have multiple examples of that person acting unprofessionally and inappropriately towards everyone. But when you bring in sexual harassment, I feel like it should be a one chance type thing. Like you do it once, you're out type of thing. I mean, there shouldn't be second chances, that kind of thing. Because I I honestly don't think talking to these types of individuals will do any good. Um, No, well, you you also get, unfortunately, a lot of times as soon as your uh, complaint of inappropriate behavior becomes sexual in nature, there seems to be... I've seen, and not, not everywhere, some people are really good about this, but kind of a societal generalization. As soon as you say something about sexual harassment, people kind of seem to step back a little bit and maybe put a little less stock in what you're saying. And, you know, it's horrendous, quite frankly. Yeah. Well, it's like, you're just being sensitive. It's like, no, I'm insulted and uncomfortable. Right. But it's it's hard to deal with. And there are, there are a lot of issues and people, I mean, how many rape is one of the most underreported crimes and how many women who report it, you know, have questions asked of them or what are they wearing or how much have they had to drink or, you know, had they ever hooked up with the person before, you know, there's so much doubt around it and that, that trickle, that doubt around even this most serious of crime trickles down and kind of infects anything of a sexual harassment nature. Well, I have two uh, non-sexual harassments dealing with personnel uh, in the field. Mm-hmm. One is illness. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of CRM projects, they're quick, get in, get out. You're out there. There's R2 vehicles. Um, and you, and if you don't do field work, you don't get paid. Yeah. So people will work very, very ill. I was on one project where I was a tech. And it was cold. We were in the lee of the mountain. We were in a rundown motel, as per usual. <laughs> and everyone just kept getting sick. We never had a whole crew after the first week. Oh. Um, it was several months long where we were working eight on, six off. Mm-hmm. And so we were working 10-hour days. Yeah, after that first week... There was a flu that was going around, a stomach bug that was going around. Oh, a stomach and bugs so you the would just worst. And stomach bugs will literally go through a crew mm-hmm. just over and over again. Because by the time it gets to the end of the crew, it's mutated. It's like an elementary school. Right? <laughs> uh, well, so if you think about it, individual... a crew is just a Petri dish. Yes, it is. You're, you know, slammed together in this tiny car or truck. And one of the worst things that happened was one of the crew chiefs, um, a man, in the middle of the night one night, during all these illnesses, started passing kidney stones. <gasps> and you could hear him throughout the entire motel. I, I knocked on the door of the girl that was in the room next to him. And I was like, what's going on? She's... She's like, he's passing stones. If he doesn't stop within an hour, we are going to drag him to the hospital. And in fact, we did drag him to the hospital. Oh, good. He ended up getting admitted. He ended up getting admitted because the they were marbles. They weren't going to pass. But he had been up screaming, keeping everyone up, passing these kidney stones. Like, oh. And that sucks. I mean, it's like, it's terrible that he's going through that. But at some point, you got to realize, it's like, you can't harm the rest of the right. crew you know it's like do yourself a favor yeah. get to the hospital don't infect the rest of the crew don't keep the other the rest of the crew awake don't yeah right. and because he was a crew it. chief that means like his whole crew couldn't go out oh, man. And, it sucked. and then we had one gentleman that ended up the flu hit him really hard he got pneumonia and he ended up being in the hospital for almost three months <gasps> that was You're really kidding. bad and it was his first it was his first crm oh, job. No. he hadn't even had a field school yet just in terms um, of, you reminded me of one where just keeping 
people awake in general, which can be the worst thing yeah. on the planet on a CRM project. You're like, car. I must sleep. <laughs> I need to eat <laughs> and I need to sleep. You mess with any of those things, you're going to have a grumpy crew. <laughs> There's like no amount of s- like candy <laughs> that's going to fix that. And we got, I was on a project and it was, we were on this project for like a month and a half. So we only got one day off one day per week. So that night, you know, right before our one day off where you could, you know, enjoy it and relax and all this stuff. One of the guys almost blew up the hotel. (laughs) And so when it happened, instead of, you know, like a logical human being would think I can't put, you know, gas powered stoves in a hotel room and, you know, and then (laughs) fall asleep while cooking something, they could, you know, catch on fire and potentially explode. And what had happened, this guy fell asleep and the stuff, it was burning and caught on fire. Somebody had um, walked by his room and noticed all the smoke pouring out and they tried to wake them up. They had chucked the, um, the stove into the sink and tried to get that figure out, but it was just like smoke was billowing out of the bedroom. Somebody was yelling, and this was like two o'clock in the morning. Somebody was running down the hallway yelling fire and then the alarms were going off and it was like snowing outside. So we all had to like get out of bed in our pajamas put on coats and then we couldn't get back into the hotel for a while and then the hotel smelled like smoke and weird burnt chicken we were so pissed off because it's like you ruined the one time we can sleep in (laughs) it uh, we were everyone was so pissed off and it was just yeah we got through it but man it was just like that ruined the week because it's like you ruined our one day off it's like, don't be that guy. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of blowing up hotels, I was on a very long project with multiple locations, multiple crews, you know, hundreds of archaeologists in little fibers and crews. And I got to one, and I saw this huge divot in the parking lot right next to one of the rooms. Because huh. it's like, what happened here? Well, the crew had decided they were going to fry a turkey. They were in that part of the world. They were going to fry a turkey. And I have, I am from the world that fries turkeys. I have fried many turkeys. But there are a number of safety steps you're supposed to follow. The one that they were not aware of, well, actually two. One, (laughs) you need to figure out the displacement before you heat up the oil. The other is you... Do not put in a frozen bird. (gasps) So not only it exploded, overflowed, caught on fire, and melted the asphalt. (laughs) And the hotel still didn't kick us out. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know we were... With the guy who almost blew up the hotel, because if the canister had caught on, um, blew up, you know, the propane tank, it would have been bad. But yeah, we didn't get kicked out. That blew my mind. So yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Your crew didn't kick it, get kicked out either. It's like, thank you. It's like you melted the parking lot. It's like sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to. Sorry. <laughs> my people are gross. Sorry. I can't say we've ever, I've ever been somewhere that almost blew things up. I went pretty lucky on the sleep situation. There was one up in Canada. Um, the doing coastal archaeology on a boat and we'd gone into a town to you know pick up fuel and water and our captain was great and he often woke up at two o'clock in the morning to start the day because you know it's the middle of summer and it's subarctic and it's light 20 hours uh (laughs) So, but there was, there was one night in particular where we'd stopped in this town, it's called Cartwright, mm-hmm. and you would think, subarctic, how bad could the bugs be? Ooh. The answer is bad. Very, very bad. Aren't there like clouds of mosquitoes and yes. flies? And, yeah. and black flies oh. and horse flies, and this, this particular problem was pretty much just the mosquitoes, mm-hmm. and... Just opening, you know, we had the the boat pretty well sealed off, but opening the door in and out to, 
you know, hook up the water tanks to get fresh water um, and to get gas, which someone has to leave the boat to do. Bugs would come in. And while we were all eating dinner, we're all sitting there, like, clapping the air around us, trying to squash these mosquitoes and hitting the walls. And we must have killed 200 mosquitoes just at dinner. And, you know, after dinner, we're still, like, trying to kill various different mosquitoes and this, that, and the other thing. And they're still there and they're still being god-awful. And we all tried to go to sleep that night. There were enough mosquitoes that you could like hear them buzzing and you could like feel them when they landed on your face because we're all in sleeping bags and, and, you know, nice berths that are a whole bunch of two by fours put together. So real hard. Uh, So great for my back, actually. Loved sleeping on those things. Uh, Not everyone felt the same way. Mm. But, you know, and it was just warm enough that you couldn't really like stick your head inside of your sleeping bag and then try and like pull the sleeping bag down over your head but then if you're like me you start doing the like what if I suffocate I'm claustrophobic I'm not actually but when you're completely engulfed and it's warm and it was just terrible and like I ended up leaving and going and trying to sleep up on the the mid part of the ship that was still enclosed hoping that it was going to be better and it was a little bit you know but then our captain was up 2 a.m. starting the engines and uh, you know we started moving and we had a, a you know got to wherever it was we were going by 7 8 a.m. so we all had breakfast real quick and then went and did archaeology and it was like a never rough <laughs> day it was a rough rough day I will say I was really proud of the interpersonal relationships of my last field crew because we were in a very tick-heavy area, mm-hmm. and all the you could be wearing a spacesuit, it would have gotten in, and mm-hmm. everyone had a buddy, and they would look at each other's everything. It ticks off. Oh man! And everyone like it was it was good. I was really proud knowing. <laughs> well, everyone no, everyone found a buddy. You know what else is terrifying uh, other than ticks? Yeah. Sharks. So terrifying. They are so terrifying. Well, you know, you're, you're more likely to get shot by a toddler or killed by a falling vending machine than attacked by a shark. Well, that no makes me way. feel better. This way. <laughs> Excellent. And on that wonderful shark fact, um, we're going to... End our second segment. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the uh, environmental issues. So more bugs. Impact, yeah. Bugs, bears, heat, colds. It's all um, open. So many bugs. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Everybody and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. When we left, we were talking about some of the personnel issues that you can run into in the field. Uh, moving on, in this section, we're going to be talking about some more environmental issues that can crop up. But someone mentioned a uh, conspiracy theory coworker over the break, yes. and I know I want to hear that story. So. <laughs> And go. Well, we are moving into the outdoors, and it involves the outdoors, so there we are. Um, you know, we get we're, we work very closely with each other, and I had a crew member once who was really into chemtrails and other, other such things. Uh, I was talking about how I really needed to get to the dentist at my uh, 
I had a couple of molars that were cracked from me grinding my teeth. And I wish I had grown somewhere with fluoride in the water, grew up on well water. And he starts going into, oh, fluoride is mind control. It's put out by the aluminum industry as a way to get rid of their runoff, which is partly true, but it's still good for your teeth. <laughs> um, and then he starts going into chemtrails and going on and on and on. Every time we would see a plane fly by, and we were on a, a major intercity flyby with planes up. And if they happened to have, you know, chemtrails because the moisture was high that day, he's like, look at that. Look at that. It's just the government, you know, engineering our weather. It's like, dude, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> and I'll try and steer the conversation elsewhere because I try really hard to get along with my crews. And I would talk to the guy and, chemtrails chemtrails engineering our weather it's like oh my god and there was other things that's just the one that stuck out was the chemtrails because talked about it multiple times a day at one time i just can we not talk about chemtrails let's just keep it to archaeology and our job the dirt the chemtrails the chemicals fall on the dirt <laughs> There are enough bad things on this dirt. I've done surveys in cotton fields in Mississippi. Ooh. And that, that there's a crust of chemicals on the top. That's why I learned to not put the dirt in my mouth to figure out the texture. Ugh. I was like, ooh, this, is a, this would be a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there are honest to goodness horrible things on the dirt, <laughs> but it's not chemtrails. <laughs> it wasn't the yeah, government. Outdoors working... It was that crazy crop duster. Uh, in that area, we were told that crop dusters, once they started the job, had a 10-year life expectancy. <gasps> You're oh. kidding. Because they, they, they flew so low to the ground, and there's a major trucking route right in the middle of their flight path. But that didn't stop them from trying to chase us through the cotton fields. And we're like, oh, I'm going to die. If it hits your lungs, they start to bleed. Oh, my God. There's a, there's, there's a desiccant for, for cotton. And luckily, it's not sprayed by the planes, but by a giant tractor with these real long arms. Mm -hmm. And if, it, if you breathe in enough of it, your alveoli spontaneously bust open and start bleeding. That's terrifying. That's when a bunch of old fat archaeologists figure out just how fast they can run <laughs> the only other time i've had to run out was uh weather related so note to self never survey in a cotton field yeah that's really what it i'm was, hearing it was unpleasant i couldn't see my feet Ooh, i hate when you can't see your feet that drives me nuts cornfields that kind of thing sorghum i hate it mm -hmm. i have a completely not archaeology, but related to cornfield story. Oh, yeah? Oh. Uh, my, my grandparents grew up uh, or lived on a farm, so whenever we went out to visit them, um, <clears throat> we were always told not to go play in the cornfields, and we always did. And when I was like, you know, eight or nine probably, we were out playing in the cornfields one day, and I ran across a black widow that was ginormous. I don't, I'm not sure you could pay me enough to do archaeology in a cornfield <laughs> after that. Well, speaking oh. of fun environmental things that are trying to kill you, <laughs> there's certainly, I mean, enough animals, insects, weather patterns, I mean, all the above that we certainly encounter on a daily basis. And some days they're certainly worse than others. I'm personally a horrible klutz. And I have small yes. feet. And so I will, I'm, I'm prone to trip anyway. Like <laughs> there've been multiple times where we're serving and then just my coworkers will see my, like my feet up in there and they're like, what just <laughs> happened? And I'm like, I fell, I'm okay. But <laughs> in one area, my feet are small enough. They, they'll fall in rabbit holes that, I mean, it's, they're not super tight and they're like, we're size six but at the same time those rabbit holes were really big in this area and you couldn't see them and so i kept just falling into rabbit hole after rabbit hole and i had a screen on <laughs> my back can i make an alice in wonderland joke <laughs> i know it's like i was like falling down the rabbit hole and progressively it got worse and at one point i sprained my ankle and so we're gonna we're starting oh, no. to hobble back to the car and we're trying to get over an electric fence 
And so we're using the shovel to push it down and try to, you know, not get electrocuted. And my foot catches because I'm already off kilter because of my ankle. I've got this big screen on my backpack. And so I completely flip over the electric fence and and hit it. So I get shocked. I flipped. I've got a sprained ankle. Then it was also incredibly hot and um, incredibly humid. So really dehydrated, super hot. And I was just like, I think Oklahoma's trying to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fences. I know. It was just like fences, rabbit holes. Just it was it was a. I've seen some uh, co-workers get caught up in the fence. This is never a good thing. No, I was I was surveying out in the west uh, with a gentleman who was very tall, mm-hmm. and he did not like to go over the fences or through the fences. He preferred to sort of get on his back and push himself under the fence. Oh, to each their own. Sure. I prefer to go. I pre- I prefer to go over. Because I've gotten too many spines in the butt. Mm-hmm. And but we were in this one... In fact, you might be rubbing yourself along some uh, grass full of ticks. <laughs> and so he's halfway under. His head and his shoulders are under the fence. Um, but it's like his arms aren't, and he gets stuck. <gasps> oh, man. Like, big man in a little coat, stuck. Around this time, the bull <gasps> that's supervising the herd of cows on the other side of the fence goes, Hey, what's going on over there? What's all that? Right. And so we see this bull kind of mosey over. And I was like, Dude, there's a bull. <laughs> Which I probably shouldn't have said because then he started like flailing. Oh, no. And which made the bull freak out. And the bull was like moving one step closer, just snorting and on the ground. Like, oh, shit, I want to watch this guy get killed. I don't know what to do when he's moving his legs. I can't grab his legs and pull him away. And luckily for him, right at the last moment, I guess the farmer, the rancher, had figured out something was going on and drove his little pickup truck full of feed going honk, 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 honk. And the bull's like, ooh, snacks. <laughs> and finally my coworker come down enough I pulled his feet out I was like so we're going over the next one he's like yeah we're going over the next one <laughs> that's terrifying I have yeah, I was like I've never been the most athletic person but uh weather and animals have made me figure out I can run hurdles if I need to <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh Especially when the sky is green and you're in between the power lines and a mobile home park. Oh, jeez. That'd do it. That's an indicator it. of a tornado, right? Correct. Especially when you start hearing the train sounds. You're like, no. Oh, there's nowhere to go. We just dropped our stuff and ran hurdles over the barbed wire fences to the nearest like building. Mm-hmm. So I've never had any issues with tornadoes, luckily. Knock on some wood. Uh, and I can't say I've ever had issues with bulls but we have um there was a day that we were out um again boat because coastal archaeology um and you know a bunch of us were on on shore digging and the the captain was still out on the boat you know and the the horn on the boat starts going and we're like oh what's going on maybe we should go check on the captain right and we get back out to the boat, and apparently there was a bear that we hadn't been able to see from where we were that was just kind of stalking us. Oh, my gosh. And, like, none of us had a gun. So uh, if someone would care to email in and tell me what the appropriate response is for how to deal with a black bear without a gun, without dying, I'd really greatly appreciate it. A black bear or a grizzly bear? There's a black bear, I think. Because black bears, you can really just make a whole bunch of noise, and they'll just run off. Um, they tend to be more. And flame. make yourself. Yeah. Make yourself big with your jacket. Yeah. Whereas grizzlies. And if you're in a group. 
Yeah. I knew I was talking to the right people. <laughs> but with grizzlies, that's a whole other thing. They have bear spray. You should carry a rifle. Um, you should not run away. I mean, with grizzlies, there's not a whole ton, much, a lot you can do. If they're going to attack you, they're going to attack you. And that's why a gun or bear spray is probably the best option. So it really depends the bear. Because I've, I've dealt with a lot of bears in California. And they're just like your mm-hmm. basic black bear, brown bear. And they, they'll walk right by you and just be like, Hey, what's up? You know? <laughs> or if you scare them, you just don't want to get in between a mama and her cubs, and then otherwise you're fine. Um, right. And you don't want to startle them. Exactly. So, like, when I was on the trail by myself a lot, um, coming around corners or into, like, a new area or down a hill, I would clap a few times, or I would just make a lot of noise as I'm walking, just to be like, look, I'm not, I'm not a predator. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here to eat you and um, just making a lot of noise. You'll be fine with uh, that that type of thing. It's a great time to practice your uh, freestyle rap skills. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you make go. The, make the next Hamilton. <laughs> well, actually, Lin-Manuel Miranda got over his fear of uh, freestyle rapping by him and his college friends driving to and from uh, Vegas from Connecticut in a week and he had the overnight driving shift. Oh. I they were going to say he got yeah. over his fear by doing archaeology and rapping to himself. <laughs> <laughs> nope, but it's a great way to keep your mouth moving and keep your mind moving. Stay awake. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, next mo- the next major <laughs> rap musical. <laughs> Trailblazers. <laughs> <laughs> I'd listen to it. Oh, I it was a bear. <laughs> it's a bear. It's a bear. <laughs> and then there was a bear. Most of the bears I've dealt with are the little black roly-poly ones um, from the eastern forests and the swamps. And they're not too bad. You just don't startle them. For bugs, because I, I want to jump on the bug train that you guys were talking about with ticks <laughs> and with uh, um, mosquitoes. Well, out here, um, we get the June bug season and, um, Junie gnats, June bugs, um, or they're just, they're awful. And there's not, they're not the cute little June bugs or something. It's like literally gnats that bite. And, um, so Junie gnat season and it's often, they're juniper. That's what I was trying to get at. Juniper gnats. They're super tiny. You can wear a gnat net. You can wear a mosquito net. They will find a way to crawl through them. And they swarm and they love to bite your ears and scalp. And they leave these welts. And so it's like they get gross. And they just, it's like a couple weeks during the summer. And you just never know when it's going to happen. But if you're around juniper trees and in the high desert, you're going to get swarmed. And there have been a couple of times where I've been in an area with horrendous um, uh, juniper gnats. There's no wind. And it's super hot. So you you can't even stop long enough to, you know, take notes or trying to do um, site paperwork. You have to keep walking and they're biting your hands. They're biting your ears. Your ears are inflamed red, even though you're wearing a net. You can douse yourself in um, bug spray. It's not going to do anything. Um, I've been told that people carry around lit cigarettes and have taken up smoking just because of the juniper nets. (laughs) Uh, and they're just they're the worst like the worst i mean i hate ticks i hate mosquitoes but there's something about those juniper gnats that it's just they you can see them on your gnat net and you can watch them crawling through and you're just like no no don't come gone with you exactly it's just it's awful and they'll get in your ears and i just up your nose oh yeah it's it's Stinks. And, like, you can't stop for lunch. You have to keep walking. And, of course, it was a day where we had, like, tons of sights to record. <laughs> You're just like, oh. Always. The one time I don't want sights to record. Uh, but, yeah, the best things people said, um, sometimes eucalyptus worked relatively well. Some of the na- more natural bug sprays. But, it, essentially, I mean, it just sounds like... They will bite through anything. Some people were making um, almost a paste out of really thick sunblock and bug spray. And what is that? Oh. Um, it's a really stinky uh, bug spray. It's like skin so soft or something like that. 
I mean, there's like off deep woods. No, it doesn't work. I'm, but there's like there's some bug spray that's called like skin so soft and it has a really pungent like weird flower smell. And they would that mix that soft. together in with the the sunscreen and like make a paste. And it's just oh, it's so bad. Don't come to the Southwest during that time. <laughs> For similar bugs, I had a lot of people in a swamp area, and they did not want to use DEET. Um, oh I mean, God. I understand. Sometimes you it's, just need it. You just got to use a DEET. So they were using all these things. They were, they were using as old wives. So some people were diluting uh, Listerine and spraying that on them. Like, that doesn't do oh. anything. I have never heard of that. And they're, they're trying everything except the DEET. And I'm like, you know what works really well? DEET. You know why? DEET. <laughs> there's also the, the one that starts with the... Yeah, there's the one that starts with the P uh, that you put on your clothes. Oh, put, wow. um, oh what is that? Don't fight. I don't know. Although yeah, if you're... The other stuff. If you're that stuff good. Me. And so they were using... Uh, Repel has a fairly decent uh, one that's... Eucalyptus and a few other things mixed together, and it will keep the bugs off for maybe an hour or two, as opposed to DEET, which is eight to ten hours. Mm-hmm. But we found out that it attracts love bugs. Now, keeping in mind, there's two types of love bugs. There's the love bug that bites you and hurts really bad. This is not that type of love bug. The other love bug that I'm talking about, it just ha- they just sort of hang out in swarms, and the male and female bond together. Mm-hmm. Like. And they, they, they fly around as one critter. Oh, weird. And they, they don't do anything. They'll cover your the front of your car, but they don't bite you. They don't they're really land annoying. on you. They're just annoying. And they're not, they're eh, they're about the size of a pinky fingernail. You know, they're not really big. They're not really small. They don't really get up in your nose or anything. They're just sort of hanging out. But they loved that repel eucalyptus natural stuff. And so someone would have some in their back pocket and they're, behind would just get swarmed with these things that's pretty funny Ugh. and then as being and as you were talking about smoking um when i did my field school in belize way back in 1998 there are several people that only smoked when they were in belize because the mosquitoes there can carry botfly oh i hate mm. i was one of i think three people that didn't get one out of 50 people in my <sighs> field school they sound and so you're just hanging around. disgusting. Hey, we're just hanging around. You're like, oh, there's a little maggot in my arm. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, we had monkeys throwing poop at us. Someone ran into a jaguar. Scorpions, really tiny ones. A vampire bat got stuck in the bunkhouse one night. Aww. So that was a lots of bugs. If you're going deep in the bush, expect lots of bugs. You know, and after a week, it's completely normal to open the outhouse, lift up the lid, kill the scorpions, put down the lid, do your business, kill some more scorpions, and keep going. Uh, We're a hearty bunch. Yeah. Yeah, just as a quick word of advice for for the listeners, I mean, if you're going into an area with a lot of bugs, like Deidre said, Use the DEET and then um, the chemical we couldn't think of, and I've used it on clothing before going into areas with really bad bugs, is permethrin. And like DEET, it's not a good chemical for you. It's not healthy. But if you're going into an area where your choices are get Lyme disease versus not getting it, use the DEET. And then permethrin, you can spray it on your clothing ahead of time, and then it can make your gear, um, like your backpack, your tent, completely repellent. Um, and just a quick word for the permethrin, do mm-hmm. not get it on your skin because oh, it yeah. is a neurological uh, reagent. And there's plenty of videos on YouTube, someone spraying permethrin on their skin, and you'll just have a foaming at the mouth seizure. It's okay. not a good thing. Yeah, you got to be super careful with so. all those kinds of chemicals. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. I think, ladies, we're just about at the end of the um, the episode, but... Do we have any <laughs> kind of final thoughts on um, dealing with problems that can arise in the in the field? I think we need another shark fact. <laughs> I think we can always do another shark fact. But um, in terms of closing thoughts, I think, I mean, the, the best takeaway 
from this episode is that, I mean, yes, you can deal with a lot of crazy things in the field from bugs to bears to even people. People can be horrible, <laughs> but we survive and, them, and we keep doing what we do. Um, you just kind of keep on trekking and then take good advice, think what needs to be done, use DEET, <laughs> take care of yourself, and everybody's going to have horror stories. You're, you, there's no way to get around them. You're going to, I don't know, get ticks. You're going to fall down a switchback. You're going to get stuck on a barbed wire fence if you're doing field work. <laughs> Something's bound to happen, but we keep on keeping yeah. on. They're survivable. Yeah. Right. And we, we also might... love the work we do. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And, you know, whatever you can say, your job's not boring. That's true. You have good stories. It's <laughs> like I have a friend and he's done a lot of underwater archaeology inland and, and in the ocean. And you never know if you're going to turn around the corner because you're looking at, in a reservoir that used to be a town and you look inside a building and you see a big mouth and you have and it takes you a full minute to remind yourself that sharks don't live in, in, in this lake. <laughs> Well, if the bull sharks can go upstream, and so you, you can get bull sharks as far north as Illinois, and the sharks in Lake Titicaca are bull sharks. Huh. Mm -hmm. Because they can change the direction of their kidneys, so they can exist in salt or fresh water. Fascinating. Yeah. Sharks are amazing. <laughs> That's why they're still alive. <laughs> that's that's really what we've learned this episode. You can deal with a lot. Stand up for yourself if you have to. DEET is a very, very useful substance, even if it's not the best for you. And we should all know more about sharks. <laughs> and look out for the land shark. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the land shark. So... <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, ladies. It's always wonderful. You're yes, welcome. And uh, I'll see you around next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>